So I think that if the energy crisis worsens in the next year, which it certainly will, the ANC is going to lose its 50% majority in 2024. I'm pretty confident that if they aren't able to keep the lights on, then they are going to lose. It might not be a devastating loss, but they might be compelled from 2024 to enter into coalition governments. That was how we ended the conversation in episode eight of the Africa Blogging Podcast. We were speaking to Andile Zulu from South Africa, where he was just giving us some context into developments around the political space in South Africa. But in that particular instance, we are talking about the energy crisis that's grappled South Africa several months now. But in the last point he made, he talked about how this electricity or power supply crisis could be the final nail on Ramaphosa's political coffin. But Ramaphosa himself seems to have nine lives. Last year, he survived an impeachment motion in parliament and also survived a challenge to his leadership of the ANC during the ANC National Congress. So, will Ramaphosa manage to make it all the way to the ballot in 2024? My name is Daniel Ominde, and this is the Africa Blogging Podcast. One more time, I have the pleasure of having Andile Zulu on this episode of the Africa Blogging Podcast. And of course, also joining me is Paida Moyom Zulu, who will be with me as the co-host for yet another edition of this podcast. Our conversation is going to take a very political angle this time, looking at how Ramaphosa serial has been running South Africa and basically conversations around what the future holds for ANC, South Africa in general, and Ramaphosa in particular. But let's start by talking about or having Adile Zulu expound to us more about the Palapala or the now famous Palapala scandal. Yeah, no, it's um it was something remarkable to see. Um, and the the struggles that Ramaphosa has been facing in terms of having so much opposition within his own party is an expression of a struggle that's been happening in the ANC for the past 15 years or so. Because you have, I don't want to say two sort of uh, concrete factions, but you have two sort of like formations within the ANC. Uh-huh. On the one hand, you have, I would call the liberals at the ANC, like Sir Ramaphosa, who want to, they want to eradicate corruption to a certain extent because it it hinders the state capacity and it and it um it sort of loses the faith of the South African people and yada yada. But they also want to pursue economic policies whereby they boost the confidence of investors, they liberalize our markets, and they get approval from the credit rating agencies. And so they uh-huh. pursue policies of austerity, they pursue policies of trade liberalization, et cetera, et cetera. And then on the other hand, you have a faction within the ANC that wants to have the state play a more central role in the economy, but in order to accumulate for their own benefit. So that is Ace Mahashule, that is Jacob Zuma. So those are people who want to use the levers of the state for personal accumulation through networks of patronage and corruption. Um, and these two factions have their own shortfalls and have their own ways in which they damage South Africa as a country, our economy, 
and the majority of our poor population. Um, it's not a choice between a devil and an angel, really. It's it's uh they're they're both bad for the country in different ways, and we can go into that later. So the reason why Cyril faces so much opposition is because his anti-corruption measures um essentially kind of like stop the tap of resources for those who have used corruption to accumulate political power and wealth. They yeah. essentially end uh, uh, a way for people to uh, prosper within the ANC that they've been used to for the past 10 to 15 years. Um, so there's that on one level, but there is also to a certain degree an ideological disagreement with the kind of neoliberalism that Sir Ramaphosa represents. Um, there are there are younger formations within the ANC, and I, by younger I mean like you know thirty five, not like you know, people who are like in their early twenties. The ANC is quite an old organization. Um, yeah. Who see South Africa going along a line of more developmental economics, um, yeah. and so there's disagreement there. There are people who are generally dissatisfied with the poverty and the inequality, and who believe Sir Ramaphosa's uh, executive is making it worse. But yeah. of course, a lot of them are also close to that that corruption uh, faction, sort of within the ANC. And I and I don't want to call it the corruption faction because there, corruption is pervasive within the ANC. It permeates throughout the whole organization. So even people who are liberals within the ANC are at mm -hmm. times complicit in this. It's very difficult to function as a politician within the ANC and not have your hand in the cookie jar at some point because that's how they value politics. Because that was um, going to be my next question, which is where where does Ramaphosa stand in terms of um these factions? Because even himself, where where he is right now, is currently facing you know investigations when it comes to corruption. Yes, and that that scandal involving um money that was, that was allegedly stolen from his ranch. I mean, mm. where, where are we with that right now? By the way. Um, so and, the, and and what really happened for yeah. those of us who are uninitiated, or what's the word on the street street when it comes to what happened? I mean, yeah, it's a the Palapala scandal is a it's an it was an incredibly confusing and and shocking scandal. Um, so essentially, what happened is that Arthur Fraser, who at one point um, was the head of the security cluster. Um, within national governments, accused Ramaphosa of money laundering. Um, he said that the president, that two people broke into the president's house in cooperation with, um, I believe, one of his domestic workers. Uh -huh. They stole a certain amount of dollars from the house, and not a small amount, not a negligible amount. It was a, uh -huh. it was multi millions of dollars, and that when Cyril um, found out about this, he did not report it to the police. He used uh, his powers as president to hide this incident mm -hmm. and try to um, you know, put it away from the public view. And Arthur Fraser said that obviously this is an abuse of your presidential power. It is mm -hmm. a violation of your constitutional mandate as president because you shouldn't be having any financial dealings as president in the first place. Um, and it was just a breach of trust with the South African people. And also, why were you hiding this money? Why was it not, if it's foreign currency, why wasn't it reported to the relevant authorities and declared mm -hmm. as mm -hmm. such? Um, and but the problem was that there was a lack of evidence for this. There was there were conflicting testimonies. There were witnesses who were 
popping up out of nowhere and there were it, it was so messy and it became a situation of he said she said and so on and so on but now what people suspect uh because Ramaphosa says that he got this money from his sale of of livestock um and everyone knows that he's a big fan of livestock he's been involved in that type of uh, industry for quite some time. Yeah. He's made a, a amount of money from that as well. So he says, hey, I was just selling my livestock, which is quite expensive. And there were some insiders in the industry who said that, you know, cattle don't cost that amount of dollars. You know, they don't cost millions upon millions of dollars. Um, mm-hmm. So there was disagreements about that as well. Um, and this is the problem with this scandal is that even when you try to explain it, there are so many conflicting details and so much ambiguity to a certain extent that it's difficult to decide. But the most important thing is that um, a investigation went on and essentially the investigation made the recommendation that there, that Parliament has grounds to bring Cyril into questioning um, for what his role in the scandal was. Yeah. And that Parliament even has grounds to advance in the impeachment of the president. Mm-hmm. And that itself is also an ongoing debate about whether mm-hmm. there are grounds to impeach the president over this. And just finally, I mean, there are some people who suspect that this money was meant to serve political purposes in terms of bribing people at the ANC National um, ex- uh, Conference that happened in December and concluded this early uh, early January. Um, so the scandal, you know, it, it sort of demystified Ramaphosa for a lot of people because it demonstrated that the ANC has, you know, corruption and, and, and dishonesty and, and just abuses of power, of political power have become the norm. It has become part and parcel of how the organization functions. Um, and that perhaps this is a culture that existed even before Zuma and before Mbeki. Um, and there are questions about the history of corruption in South Africa in general, even amongst the apartheid government. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it's a, it's a tough, confusing situation even now. Very interesting, Muzulu. Do you want to come in at this point? Yeah, uh, I would want to ask that now that we we saw um, the former Minister of Health, Orena Genesa Ramaphosa, for the president. And he lost by, we could say, a narrow margin. How does this fit into the factionalism that is now between the neoliberals in uh, Ramaphosa camp and uh, the red, the radical economic transformation faction, which is uh, whose godfather is uh, is Jacob Zuma? And mm. uh, would this make sure? Uh, uh, how would the ANC would it go as a collective unit, or we are starting to see? Uh, a, a split within the ANC, which could have uh, um, an effect on uh, its performance in uh, in the national election. I mean, yeah, no, Muzulu, you raise a really good question, and it's an unfolding situation because the the reality is that although Ramaphosa's popularity has been quite significantly decreasing in the past three years, well, essentially since the pandemic, because. The, his administration's handling of the pandemic, in my opinion, was quite disastrous. And look, it's not an easy thing to respond to, but um, since then, his popularity has been decreasing. However, some polls have found that he's still more popular than the organization itself. 
And there are clearly after the conference, there were ministers within the ANC who realized that the ANC's ability to survive the 2024 elections might in fact depend on everyone rallying behind Ramaphosa, putting away their ideological differences and their real political differences in order for the party to stay united and have some chance of surviving. But at the same time, there are members within the party who are so disgruntled for a variety of reasons um, that who are willing to, in public, um, criticize the president and undermine his authority in some instances as well. Um, people like Lindy Wesisulu, Ace Mahashule, Zuelim Kiza, even to some extent when he was campaigning. So it, it, it seems to be a split between people who are willing to diverge from the president and the neoliberal program and people who are willing to bite the bullet and say, look, we're not content with this, but if we don't rally behind this person and his administration, we aren't going to survive the 2024 um, elections. Uh, because the disunity within the ANC is one of the reasons why it isn't able to be capable as a government in terms of producing coherent policy, in terms of being able to produce members who have the administrative and logistical capacities to carry out their duties as civil servants. Um, I mean, just in 2021 alone, it was shocking. In 2022, sorry, two months into the year, there were already five assassinations amongst ANC members. That's how severe the disunity has gotten that most of the political assassinations in the country are not of activists and dissidents. They're in fact between ANC members at the local government level, jostling amongst each other for municipal positions um, because those positions mean access to power and more importantly, mean access to financial resources um, and networks which will allow them to accumulate more power, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so the ANC has a choice to make amongst themselves and Ramaphosa has been trying to do this. Um, are they going to continue infighting and therefore lose more capacity as government and lose more legitimacy? Or are they going to try rally behind Ramaphosa and his policies and, and, and maybe stand a, a, a better chance of surviving? Um, it's hard to say because Ramaphosa's policies themselves lead to the ANC's decline in many ways. Um, it, so the future is uncertain, I think. But but the, you're right in that the, the factional politics lead to the, the, the party's um, destruction from the inside. And, so, and, and probably if you could also add insight into the relations that uh, we understand that uh, Ramaphosa is a darling of uh, white mono, uh, monopoly capital and that mm. uh, the media in South Africa has not really uh, gone hard on, on him as it, as it did on uh, Jacob Zuma. Is there any veracity to those allegations that uh, the media is going uh, soft on uh, on Ramaphosa because of uh, his neoliberal policies, not, uh, not, not necessarily that he's a good leader. Oh, yes, yes. I think, uh, Muzulu, you point something out that's very, very true and that's very frustrating sometimes if you're someone who is a progressive um, and who is looking for good, insightful analysis in the South African 
media landscape, the mainstream media landscape. And the unfortunate fact is most of mainstream media in South Africa is sponsored and funded by corporate entities. And so what the media will reflect in its analysis and its, and its framing of issues will often reflect the worldview of those corporate entities. So when you have a president like Ramaphosa who comes in, who essentially serves the function of stabilizing the neoliberal order that was beginning to fall apart in post-apartheid. That's what Ramaphosa essentially wants to do. And I, I don't think he's a tool or anything like that because he himself is a billionaire. He is someone who is deeply invested in this neoliberal order. And so he is there to stabilize it. And if you have someone who says, I'm going to cut uh, my ministers, my financial, my finance ministers are going to cut spending towards education, healthcare, welfare, and, and social services, corporate entities like that. They, they don't like governments which spend too much on those things. If you have someone who says that I'm going to put my foot down when it comes to unions and going to remove the red tape that uh, doesn't give employers the ability to really be productive and really you know generate revenue corporate entities like that um and unfortunately a lot of us and commentators um and i don't mean this in a, any mean way i just think it's a description of the situation a lot of our commentators and journalists are people who come from middle class and wealthy backgrounds whose prejudices and like ideologies are reflected not intentionally, but are reflected in how they perceive the president. I mean, you had The Economist in 2018 saying that if you want to renew South Africa, Ramaphosa is your guy to, to um, put forward. And it's because, again, of his neoliberal policies. And it was absurd to me because I'm like, these are the neoliberal policies that we had been pursuing since 1996, under Mbeki and under Mandela. And they did not produce an improved well-being for the majority of South Africans who are poor, who are working class and who are unemployed. They might've led to some economic growth, but it was, it was economic growth that filtered to the top of the population, the very rich 1% of the population. So um, people have not been looking at Ramaphosa's policies and saying, what are these policies and what are the outcomes of them? Instead, it's been very much a chorus of praise. Um, simply because there is an alignment between what he wants and what how mainstream media sees things because of its corporate nature. If you look at South African social media, for instance, Twitter, you see a lot of the younger generation, 35 and below, they are expressing a lot of um, you know, outrage, for lack of a better word, in when it comes to how the country is being run. They are yeah. expressing a lot of disconfidence in um, Cyril Ramaphosa's leadership of the country. We've seen these hashtags around ANC 2024 that have been trending for the last one or so weeks, um, like you know, telling guys not to vote for Ramaphosa. For instance, there's this, there's this one quote that I saw on, on, on social media that says, he who defends Cyril Ramaphosa hates the Republic of, of South Africa. And... There's, there's a lot of this that we're seeing among among the young voters. What sort of impact are they likely to have um, when it comes to the next um, elections, or even driving, um, you know, the sort of um, scenario where you know driving these agitations forward in terms of 
Cyril Ramaphosa doesn't even get to be on the on the ballot in the first place, despite having you know won the NC leadership. Yeah, no, it's a it's a situation in which a lot of born free South Africans, including myself, it's a process where we were becoming more and more disillusioned because our leaders are not able to meet the expectations they created in the past 27 years. So although there's a lot of young people who are expressing dissatisfaction, who are expressing anger and frustration, and righteously so, um, because it's very tough being a young person in South Africa if you aren't middle class and, 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 and rich. It's, it's, it's incredibly difficult. And as it is in, in, static in you know, Southern Africa in general, but the, mm-hmm. the, the reality is a lot of young South Africans are not politicized. A lot of young South Africans do not belong to political organizations. A lot of young South Africans have no experience in political activity. Um, and that is a result of the post-apartheid economic order in which most young South Africans just don't have the time to be really involved in civic duties and politics because they're trying to survive. They're always trying to find jobs. They're always trying to mm-hmm. hustle. And the alternatives presented to them are not attractive. Um, are, we, the are, we, is the are, we, are we going to see them? Is this going to influence them coming out to vote? We've seen this happening yeah. right, right here in Kenya where you know a candidate was primarily driven by the young people to to. Mm-hmm. to what leading the election when you look further west to nigeria yeah the current candidate who's leading in the polls peter obi for the election that's going to come out up next um later on this year again he's being propelled by that young youthful vote are we going to see like these problems that have bedeviled the state of south africa pushing the young people to basically just come out and vote and say you know what we want something different. We don't care about that baggage of you being the party that um you know that gave us um independence. We want things to do better. And I'm seeing them putting up quotes like you know what Mandela said previously, like if the NC mm-hmm. does not if the NC does to you what the apartheid government did to you, then you must do to the NC what you did to the apartheid government. So it, it seems to me that uh, in the polls. In, in the voting booths, that isn't where a lot of young people are going to show up. Because a, a, what makes South Africa different and what's concerning about it compared to, like you say, Nigeria, Kenya, um, uh, and other countries in Africa, is that the apathy, the levels of apathy are quite high. A lot of young people just don't see the point of even voting or of getting involved in politics because politics hasn't been shown to be useful to them. Mm-hmm. I think where you're likely to see young people is in mass movements and, and mobilizations on the ground. That's where you see a lot more young people is in grassroots movements, activist groups, and they're beginning to pop up now. And even within unions also, um, young people are, they're, they're apathetic towards the voting booth, but they're willing to go on the ground and protest and getting involved in education. And I think that's where our future is. Of course, the booth is important, but we need to regain a political culture first. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't know how. I always tell people, I'm like South Africans, we've lost the ability to do politics. You know, we've we used to be such a we used to have such an incredible and potent and effective political culture. It's what brought down the apartheid regime, but we've lost that political culture in the past 27 years. So we need to rebuild it because 
even if we vote for a different party, um, if we don't have the ability to mobilize and put pressure on government to change things and policies and legislation, then you know the, well, that party's going to steamroll over the population like the ANC did. Um, but also, we have to remember that the voting data in South Africa, the 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 surveys and the polls, they're not as good as in in some of the countries. So we still have to catch up also in terms of like actually gathering the quantitative data to get an idea of how people are feeling. So this week, there is the, this week there is a call for the national shutdown, and this has been this was previously spearheaded by the opposition parties, especially the DA. Um, we've seen the ANC also factions of the ANC, um, so to speak, coming in and joining their voices behind the call for a national shutdown. This is likely related to the topic that we talked about in the previous episode that, that of the power crisis, um, but. Generally, just give us more context in what this national shutdown is and how it plays into you know the current political atmosphere when it comes to South Africa. And I think Muzulu wanted to say something as well. Yeah, I just wanted him to shed us more light. What will be the impact of uh, movements such as uh, Operation Dujula and uh, the aspect that it also has some uh, some tribal undertones? And mm. to these tribal undertones usually coming from KZN and uh, parts of uh, Hauteng province. Would this have uh, caused uh, Ramaphosa to change his policy to try to accommodate uh, the, the Zulu majority and, uh, and some of the issues that uh, issues like uh, xenophobia and uh, the, the, uh, the, uh, the migrant issues? The economic migrant issues would would really see would we see um, Ramaphosa going hard to make uh, hard policy decisions on saying we are going to close our borders to migrants and uh, we are going to, to 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 open up the economic sector to to locals to be employed they, they would be having the first right of of uh, offers to jobs and 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 services. Um. Yeah, I'll deal with the, the, the question of xenophobia first, because I think, um, so the problem with the ANC is that it's a, it has always been willing to entertain reactionary and regressive things like xenophobia simply because they want votes and they want to hold on to executive power. So there was a time when the ANC would very much unconditionally condemn xenophobia if there were instances of outbursts of you know violence and and so on. But as the years went by and as they got worse at governing and as the general situation got worse, local ANC councillors and mayors began entertaining xenophobia and even began instigating violence against migrants in certain communities. Uh -huh. And already we've seen some ANC ministers um, uh, give in to the demands of pressure groups like Operation Dudula because they are aware that they have lost or rather they are losing a monopoly on legitimate violence. In other words, they're aware that if we have another outburst like what we had in Durban in 2021, where there were riots across KZN, KwaZulu-Natal, mm -hmm. and Gauteng, yeah, they're aware that if we were to have that kind of outburst, but if it were to be xenophobic, that they would not be able to control it. Most likely they would need to draw in the military to be able to suppress it, and that many people would suffer because of it, and they would lose more 
uh, legitimacy. So yeah. the ANC is willing to make essentially make a deal with the devil. And it's disgusting to witness because what they're saying is that we're willing to discriminate against migrants without justification or any need. And we're willing to entertain and allow this attitude to grow among South Africans um, in order to stay in power. And I do see Ramaphosa being willing to make those compromises um, at a provincial level, at least. Um, on a national level, I'm not entirely sure, but on a provincial level, at least, um, in order to can, to um, hold on to power. But it's a very silly and destructive move in the long term, because if you entertain groups like Operation Dudula, those kinds of formations end up, you know, uh, they, they sort of pave the way for the kind of ethnic cleansing that we've seen in our continent for so many decades, uh -huh. a kind of bloodshed that yeah. we don't want to see again. Those groups, yeah. you know, those groups don't, they don't get satisfied. Um, and uh, they very much remind me, and some people might say this is hyperbolic, but they very much remind me of the brown shirts in Germany in the 1930s or uh -huh. the black shirts in Mussolini's Italy in in 1930s, which came about when the economic system was in crisis yeah. and the economic elites and political elites didn't know what to do and they didn't want to be held accountable. And when people looked for alternatives and tried to hold them accountable, they were willing to make deals with reactionary groups, which tried to scapegoat migrants for problems that are created by the government and the economy. Yeah. And so Operation Dudula, much like the Nazi brown shirts and Mussolini's fascists, they go into the streets, they intimidate people, they rile up these tensions, and they desensitize the population step by step to violence against uh, immigrants. And that's where you get mass ethnic killings and cleansings. And I hope that progressive people are, were able to mobilize and be very strong in our resistance to these people. Um, when you look at them, yeah. When you look at this from the outside, um, Zulu, um, and being the being that you come from a country where one, it's most of you, you people, it's most of you fellow citizens from Zimbabweans who like you know constitute a majority of the immigrant population across the border in South Africa, but also the fact that South Africa, Zimbabwe played a very key role towards the liberal 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 liberalization. Is that the word for it? Or just South Africa getting their independence from the apartheid government? And um, do you, or is it usually a feeling um, across the border in Zimbabwe that, you know, South Africa is being, South Africans are being that thankless little brother who doesn't see that, you know, we help you get here? Yeah, I, I think that there is a general that feeling that uh, South Africa has uh, considered itself not to be part of Africa, which is uh, a, a, some feeling that uh, you get in the diplomatic circles uh, when you talk to some of the those uh, in leadership positions in Zimbabwe that uh, the South Africans think of themselves differently. And uh, then we also have the issue that uh, most of the problems that we have witnessed in uh, in SADC, it's also because uh, South Africa had uh, a weaker uh, leadership in terms of uh, what it could do originally. It did not use its uh, economic uh, economic uh, power base 
as a leverage to to push for good governance, uh, to push for um, for for democratization of uh, of, of uh, southern African states, and and uh, and as a result, because of poor uh, poor governance, uh, uh, dictatorial tendencies in some countries in southern Africa, then you find and uh, the economic uh, deterioration, you find that uh, most people are now moving down south because at least there is still some semblance of, uh, of formal uh, economic structures where people would hopefully get uh, a job or two and they would scrap through their lives. And uh, this is uh, a, a bad implication on uh, regional uh, relations. And I, I say this uh, with... Uh, with the understanding of how South Africa has, uh, for instance, uh, intervened in, uh, in countries like, uh, like Lesotho, more often than not, when there is some crisis in Lesotho, South Africa is just being there because it needs the water which comes from the Lesotho highlands. And, uh, and really, they cannot allow the situation to deteriorate just as much as uh, the situation in Zimbabwe, for instance, has deteriorated to... to, to to a situation where you have nearly about half a million of your, your citizens moving into South Africa. Mm -hmm. Well, interesting perspective from there. So, Andile, as we close up, as we close this conversation today, we have less than three minutes left on the clock. Maybe just chime in on um, my earlier question on the national shutdown that's coming. Oh, yeah. And how does it play into the current? you know, um, atmosphere, political atmosphere in the country, especially being that even now a faction of the ANC is supporting this call that was initially um, being pushed forward by the opposition DA party. So the, the national shutdown, a little bit of context, it, it arises as a response to load shedding, but more importantly and more centrally, it's a response to a tariff hike. So ESCOM applied for a 32% tariff increase um, to the National Energy Regulator of South Africa, and it got approved. And so ESCOM got the permission to increase its tariff by 18% beginning on the 1st of uh, April 2023, and then mm -hmm. to increase it by 12% in 2024. Now, a tariff hike comes in the context where people are experiencing so much load shedding and they're also experiencing increases in food and fuel costs. So, so people, ha it's an- You don't yeah. have power, but then you're still being charged an arm and a leg for it. Exactly. Exactly. So people are, it's like, why should I pay for electricity more that I'm not receiving? Mm -hmm. um, and so people want a national shutdown to say, look, we need to find a way to address this urgently, because if we don't, we're going to have a crisis of epic proportions that it could exceed the kind of violence and instability you saw in the 90s. Does this then have the potential to move from you know, an, an energy crisis that's tied to an economic crisis into a political crisis in itself, being that we are in this political season in South Africa? Oh, yes, most definitely, because... If load shedding escalates and if ESCOM reaches, say, for example, a stage eight or a stage 10, which some people say is a possibility, it means that hospitals will be shut down. It means that industries will be put to a halt. Um, it, it, it would be devastating for the country. 
Um, so the Democratic Alliance, the Economic Freedom Fighters, uh, trade federations and unions, civil society organizations, environmental activists, community groups, a bunch of people are mobilizing in different ways over the next few weeks and calling for different types of protest actions and national shutdowns. Um, but the issue is, is that many of these demands have a misunderstanding of what the problem is. So you can call for an end to load shedding and an end to the tariff hike. But if you don't change ESCOM's full cost recovery model, those things are still going to continue. So what I'm saying is, and what some you know more radical progressives are saying is that in order for us to end load shedding, the government must abandon austerity. It must make a commitment to investing in ESCOM, not through loans, not through foreign direct investments, but through the government's purse. And in fact, there are trillions in our national pension fund that are available um, for to the government to be able to inject the needed resources in ESCOM to build its fleet and over the next two to five years put an end to load shedding. Um, this so, is a conversation uh, that will this is a conversation yeah. that we will definitely continue to have in the in the weeks and days to come. Thank you so much for your insight, both Adile Zulu and Muzulu Paidamoyo for taking your time to you know give us some insights in what's happening in that region for these two episodes i am very sorry i would have loved to go on but allow me to bring this to a hard stop just because yeah, of no our time constraint thank you gentlemen thanks Andile. thanks uh, thanks guys um, thanks daniel me. thanks Muzo. what a lovely conversation man we could go on and on and on with this that was Andy Lezu joining us from Cape Town, South Africa. Usually, he writes for us on Africa Blogging from, from Durban. But for this edition, he was joining us from Cape Town. Always a pleasure having him on the show. And of course, my co-host for today was none other than Paida Moyom Zulu, Zimbabwean journalist and political commentator. He writes for Newsday, Zimbabwe. And of course, he also writes for The Standard and The Independent, all publications of Zimbabwe's Alpha Media Holdings Limited. My name is Daniel Obinde. I've been your host for this special edition of the Africa Blogging Podcast. Oh, they're always all special editions anyway. Thank you for always listening and keeping us company. Remember that you can find this podcast from anywhere you like to find your podcast from. Just search for Africa Blogging Podcast. Also, you can do well by liking, following, and talking about this podcast with your friends or also sharing on your social media. That will really, really, really help us a great deal. Don't forget to check out our website. That is www.blogging.africa to find out more about stories and the conversations that we cover on the Africa Blogging platform. This podcast is a production of the Africa Blogging Network, the international blogger network that features a plurality of voices and views supporting democratic culture and debate in sub-Sahara Africa. The Africa Blogging Network is affiliated with Cast Media Africa, a program of the Conrad Adenio Stifter. The views expressed in this podcast do not in any way represent the views of Africa Blogging as a network or its partner organizations.